Well, good morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection SC, and it's uh, great to have you with us this morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? And if you didn't bring a Bible of your own, there's a blue Bible on the floor near you, and you can find Ephesians 5 on page 978. We are uh, getting towards the end of our series in uh, the book of Ephesians that we're calling We Are Family. Um, Ephesians could be said uh, to be the, the gospel of the family. Paul talks about this metaphor of the church as the family of God throughout, um, throughout this book. And so as we uh, look at the first half of chapter 5, let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention and show our deference to the Word of God. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, these uh, are words that might uh, cause us to open our eyes wide um, and be surprised at um, just the bluntness of what you have to say here. God, if it is true that the sexually immoral will not enter your kingdom, then none of us would enter your kingdom. And so God, I pray that you would help us to find in the truth of your word, healing this morning. Would you do that in us in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated, please. 
Well, several years ago, I was invited to um, be the speaker at a youth camp, and uh, so our whole family went to uh, this camp where Ashley and our kids got to hang out at camp for the week, and I had to work. Um, <laughs> and um, every morning and every evening, I was giving a talk to junior hires, and so I would often go off and do my thing while um, Ashley kind of tried to manage. I think we just had two small children at the time. And uh, one time during this week, I was in this room where I was kind of using as my office, my place to just be alone and be quiet. And I came out into the main meeting room that looks not dissimilar to this. And there I saw one of my boys in front of an empty congregation with a music stand. And he comes up to the front and he takes this music stand and he goes, and he just kind of starts going nuts. <laughs> and Ashley and I looked at each other going, hmm, I wonder where uh, he got the idea to do, got the idea to do that. Um, he's my little mini-me. Have you ever seen your own behavior come out of your children? Um, have you ever heard your own words and you realize with terror that your words are not coming out of your mouth, but they're actually coming back at you out of the mouths of your own children. It's one of, I think, the, the terrifying realities of being a parent for those of us who are parents. And yet I think it's also part of the beauty of parenting because the truth is that as human beings, we always begin to imitate whatever it is that we hold most dear. Whoever that person is, whatever that thing is that we love, that we value, that we strive for, our behavior begins to um, you know, imitate whatever that person or that thing is. We tend to imitate whatever it is that we find joy in life in. And in Ephesians 5, as Paul is applying the truth of the gospel that he's been explaining in the first half of the book, he picks up on this reality of what it's like to be a human being, and he encourages us to imitate our Father, to imitate God. But what you have to see in this is this, that there's a connection between imitation and intimacy. And in some ways, if, if you hear nothing else that I say today, then listen to this. I know it's, it's kind of early in the sermon it's only been like three minutes, so please don't just check out because I said that. But this is, this is the key to understanding this passage. Um, what you have to see is this. I was talking to a friend. Let me, let me try to put a you know, point on this before I repeat what I said. I was talking to a friend, a guy I've gotten to know a little bit on Friday. And this is a guy who is... Um, you know, middle-aged man who grew up in the church and went to a Christian college, but is not a practicing Christian. And as I just begin to, now he's not, and as I begin to get to know him and just kind of asking him about his life and his story, um, this last Friday, I kind of had reached this point in, in our relationship. He knows that I'm a pastor, and I kind of said, hey, level with me. Like, what, what's, what's the deal? What's going on with you and, and God? And, and he said, uh, he began to, his answer that was something that honestly it startled me because what he said is, it's not actually that I disbelieve the Bible. I pray with my kids most nights before bed. Um, I agree with a lot of what the Bible has to say. 
Um, but he said, I have this massive problem with Christianity because of its implications for free will. And he said, uh, I just think that if I have a free will, that I shouldn't just accept the standards of the Bible and just live by them because God says that they're true. It doesn't seem to me like it would be an authentic way for me to live if I don't get to decide for myself how I should live. And, you know, I think that that's a very common idea in the culture that we live in today. The only problem with it is it doesn't remotely resemble the way that we actually live as human beings. Um, I mean, how did we learn how to read? My, I'm a kindergartner who has gone off to kindergarten and he is discovering for himself a completely novel approach to the alphabet, right? No, like he goes to kindergarten and he's learning the ABCs that he didn't make up on his own. He is learning how to read by imitating those who have gone before him. How did we learn how to drive? Well, we watched somebody do it for a long time. And then we got to a certain age where it was appropriate for us to get into the driver's seat and begin to try it out for ourselves. Uh, how did you start off in your career? Well, you, uh, you start off in your career by imitating those that you respect, that you look up to, and those you admire. Sure, eventually we might put our own spin on things, but most of our, of our behavior as human beings is not actually original. Well, whoever it is that we love, respect, and admire, we begin to model our behavior after them. And so it is with God. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children, okay? As beloved children, not as unthinking robots who don't have uh, the ability to think for themselves. He says, as children who know that we have been loved far better than we deserve. Here's what I want you to see. Intimacy with God always leads to imitation of God. Intimacy with God always leads to imitation of God. If you have intimacy with God, if you know that you are loved, if, he, if you know that he is your father and that he has given you a savior and he has brought you into his family and he's given you an inheritance, this is what Paul spent three chapters talking about at the beginning of Ephesians. If you know all of those things, if you are experiencing intimacy with God, then your life, your behavior, your actions will begin to resemble the character of the God that you love. And if you don't act like God, um, if you don't find these behaviors coming out of you, then do not just try harder and buckle down and get it done, because that will crush you. You've got to know God. Everything that Paul says in Ephesians 5 about how to live as Christians, um, chapter 5, he gets into what, what I think you hear called the household rules. He's been talking about who the church is, that we are the family of God. And now having talked about the enormous blessing of being in that family, he says, now here are the rules, the household rules for the family of God. And so everything he says about the household rules assume what he's already said about the blessing of the family in the first half of the book. He said, God loves you in Christ. He has reconciled you to himself in Christ. Where there was hostility, there is now intimacy that you have with God, and because there is intimacy, there is also imitation. We will be drawn to imitate whatever or whoever we love, and if we love God, that will work itself out in every aspect of our lives as we become imitators of him. So there are three specific things that Paul talks about as he encourages us 
to become imitators of God. And I have to say, in, um, just in full disclosure, I'm relying heavily on a sermon I heard by a friend of mine named Les Newsom, who's a pastor in Mississippi, of all places. Um, these three, three places in this passage that Paul talks about, the way that we ought to walk as we imitate God. He uses this metaphor of walking, which is kind of just a, his way of talking about, as you go about your life, this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to imitate God. And the first thing he says is that we are to walk in love. Verse 1 and 2, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What he's saying here is that our motivation to love each other is based on the reality that we have been recipients of love. That we will only love others in as much as we have received the love of someone else. In order to be a loving person, you have to be a person who has received love. Now that, I think, just if we just moved, okay, point number two. If we just left that, it would be like, well, that seems like fairly, okay, so that's nice, that's positive. I don't know that it sounds distinctly Christian, even. Um, it sounds like common sense, but what makes that especially Christian? But what we have to see is that um, the, the kind of instruction to love one another as Christ has loved us was not a commonplace um, ideal in the first century. And in fact, it's only become a common, you know, the idea that the Christian ethic is let love characterize everything you do. Um, you know, that doesn't seem like it's a distinctly, like uh, everybody would agree with that today in the 21st century in the Western world, probably, you know, more or less, right? But the only reason that that is commonplace in the 21st century is because of the words that the Apostle Paul and others wrote in the New Testament in the first century. Because the reality is that the, the, uh, the city of Ephesus in the first century and the Roman Empire as a whole was a brutal place to live. The practice of the exposure of infants was commonplace in the first century. Um, if you had an unwanted child, and especially if that unwanted child, or that child was born and she was a female, you would simply leave her outside, expose her, expose her to the elements. That was, that's not just like an aberrant thing that happened sometimes. That was a common practice in the first century. Uh, the wide, widespread practice of slavery in the first century uh, was just brutal. These sexual practices of the Ephesians would be enough to make you blush, <laughs> um, even in the world that we live in. The idea that we should, um, in love, give up our own rights, give up our own preferences, give up our own desires, and show deference to those who are uh, weaker than we are or less advantaged than we are, uh, that would have sounded like foolishness in the first century. And so the only reason that as a culture we could get behind the idea of something like we are going to um, fight to end human trafficking in the 21st century is because of the influence that Christianity has had over the previous 20 centuries. Now why am I making such a big deal about this? Well because we have to see that when Paul says this, what sounds like this kite, just love everybody, all you really need is love that it's, it can just like wash over us because everybody agrees with that today. But that was not the case in the first century when Paul wrote this. This was a radical, radical ideal that he was calling Christians to. 
And I think once we see that, we actually begin to see that despite all of our lip service for love, it is actually an incredibly radical idea in 2017 as well. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is keep reading because having said, do everything in love in verses 1 and 2, he then continues to define what he means by that in verses 3 through 5. And what we see is that, you know, he started off with these nice flowery words about loving everybody. And suddenly it seems to turn into this kind of wide-eyed tirade against sexual immorality. And we might look at this and be like, Paul, how did you get from there over to, you were doing great with the love stuff, Paul. Why did you have to bring sex into it? What is going on? And what you have to see in order to understand what he's talking about here is that whenever the authors of the Bible, uh, this is true in the Old Testament, this is true in the New Testament, whenever the authors of the Bible want to um, demonstrate what a life of intimacy with God looks like, they always begin to talk about sex. The Bible, according to the Bible, sex was not created by God just to have fun every once in a while, though it may be fun. The Bible would have us believe that the intimacy of sex was created by God in order to point us to the sort of relationship that God wants to have with us. So just one example, Isaiah 62 says, For as a young man marries a maiden, so shall your God rejoice over you. God is saying, if you want to know what it looks like to relate to me, then you should look at a young man who has just gotten married. Um... There is an intimacy, there is a vulnerability, there is a depth of knowledge that is implied in what the Bible says uh, when it talks about sex, because it's saying that sex is simply a physical, maybe a small s sacrament, a physical uh, representation of a larger reality that is meant to help us understand what it means to know God. So what Paul is saying here is that when we think about what it looks like to know God and how to relate to him, we should not be thinking about lists of rules and do's and don'ts or trying harder. We should think about human sexuality. So now do you understand maybe a little bit more when I was talking about this idea of the, the intimacy leading to imitation. Um, as we think about the desire to want to follow God and imitate him based on the intimacy that we have with him, Paul's mind goes sex. What he's saying is that we cannot experience the wonderful, life-altering love of God if we take his most vivid sign of that love and we twist it and we misuse it and we think that it is an end to our own gratification or we treat it lightly. And what this means for us is this, that if we find ourselves desiring sexuality in a way that we know God forbids, that that is like a warning life a warning light that is flashing on the dashboard of our soul saying something is really wrong in your relationship with God. It's a warning sign that shows us that something is lacking in our intimacy with God. Listen, I, we, could, um, we could unpack this. We could spend all, we could spend a whole series talking about the implications of this, couldn't we? Um, I wish I could unpack this further. Let me just say this, that I know that this is a complicated topic and as soon as we talk about sex, it brings up Um, all kinds of joys, but it also, for many of us, brings up all kinds of feelings of guilt and hurt. Um, And Paul is saying that our struggles with sex are supposed to make us long for God. Only he can provide the lasting intimacy that we crave. 
G.K. Chesterton famously said, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's not looking for sex, he's looking for God. Does that seem like an extreme statement? Paul is saying that only God can provide the lasting intimacy that we crave. Okay, walk in love. But secondly, don't just walk in love, walk in light. Walk in light. Paul says um, in uh, verses, you know, around verse 8, he says, he instructs us to walk as children of light. But uh, at the beginning of that verse, he says something that's interesting. Um, We might think that he would call us to, um, he talks about having walked in in the darkness. Um, And you might think that he said, he he would say, like, you used to walk in darkness, but now I want you to walk in the light. But he doesn't say that we should actually walk in light. He actually says in verse 8 that you are light in the Lord. He's saying that Christians themselves are light in our world. Now, of course, this is light that comes from Jesus, who's the light of the world. But I think he's actually saying much more than just Jesus is the light that we are supposed to walk in. He's saying that God, as God works out his restorative love in our lives, it begins to change every aspect of who we are so that as we go into the world in which we live, we actually go into it as sources of light. In your neighborhoods, in your schools, in your families, in your workplaces, Paul is saying, you are light in Christ. As Christians, as you go out into the world, you will live in a way that is distinct from the world around you. Um, You will tell the truth even when it doesn't uh, really benefit you. You won't step on people in order to get ahead. Um, If you're living, you know, even just this sexual ethic that we just talked about, if you are living according to the Bible's standards of sexual morality, your life will look very different than the lives of your neighbors, won't it? And all of these things and so many more will mean that just by your presence in the world, you are bringing light into those places and it will have an effect on those around you. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. One of the regular experiences that I have as a pastor, and if I'm honest, I hate this. I, I hate this aspect of being a pastor, is that there are oftentimes that I'm like in a social setting or with a group of people, and somebody will say something. And you know, maybe it's like an off-color joke, maybe it's in a group of men, and somebody says something about, you know, some makes a disparaging comment about women. Somebody will say something, and then they'll look at me and say, hey, don't judge me, pastor. And I, oh man, I hate that. Um, and, and the reason I hate that is because I think what's actually happening is this person has just said something that they know they shouldn't have. And somehow the presence of a Christian there makes them feel bad. And instead of acknowledging that and like apologizing, you put it off on me. And that's, that's just kind of the reality of like what happens when somebody says, what do you do? And the response is, I'm a pastor. But hey, guess what? I want to invite all of you into my reality here. Because um, there's a positive aspect about that too. Because what Paul is saying that as we imitate our Father, we don't go out. It's not just pastors that go out into the world as light. It's Christians that go out into the world as light. And part of what that means is that our very presence, if we are living lives that are graciously and distinctly Christian, 
that our lives will have the effect of exposing and restraining the, the sin that corrupts and dehumanizes our world. As we live as light, we will expose what is broken by offering what is beautiful. That's what it means to walk as light. The, uh, I don't know, if I, if I say the word velvet, re- phrase velvet revolution, I don't know if that means anything to you. The velvet revolution is uh, what has, um, it's, it's come to be known as the velvet revolution, the peaceful transfer of power in the Czech Republic from, um, from the former communist uh, government that ruled uh, Czechoslovakia for like 43 years. And um, it's kind of uh, astounded historians and journalists and people who study this sort of thing because after decades of a brutal regime um, you know, ruling this country, in a matter of days, that communist uh, regime was brought to an end without a single shot fired. And uh, Vaclav Havel was a playwright who served as the first president of the Czech Republic. And he was once asked why the Velvet Revolution was so successfully nonviolent. And he answered something like this. He said, we had a parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and we sang our songs and we read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say, we don't have to believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Ah, that's beautiful, but at its best, the church is a countercultural parallel society. Not living separately from the world, in the world, and yet distinct from it. And when we sing our songs, and when we read our poems, and when we learn our truth, and then we go out into the world as imitators of the God that we love, we go out as light. We go out as light. Thirdly, walk in wisdom. Okay, walk in love, walk in light, but thirdly, walk in wisdom. Verse 15 says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Okay, what is wisdom? Well, my uh, favorite definition of wisdom is that wisdom is art in the skill of living. You know, knowledge is what you know, but wisdom is knowing how and when to use it. Like a, uh, a skilled artist knows the laws of composition, but he doesn't just, or she doesn't just know the laws of composition, but they know when to use them, when to push the boundaries, when to ignore them altogether. In the same way, a wise person, a wise Christian, knows not only God's standards for life in this world, but how to skillfully apply them. Most of the decisions that we make as human beings about things like our careers and who to marry and where to live and should I take that job or should we have another kid and all, you know, all of these things that seem like, oh gosh, what is the will of God in my life? I mean, the Bible doesn't answer any of those questions, does it? And so we have to apply the truths of the Bible in wisdom in order to arrive had an answer. And Paul specifically talks about two areas um, in our lives. He talks about the way that we use our time. And then did you notice he talks about the way that we use alcohol? (laughs) When he talks about what wisdom looks like. Verse 16, he says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
He says, you are wise when you know how to use your time well. You know, time is the one resource in life that we will never get more of. When we uh, spend a moment, it is gone forever and we can never get it back. You can earn more money. You can never earn more time. A friend of mine, uh, he was my church planning coach. He was saying to me, he made this kind of offhanded comment last week when we were talking. He was talking about this opportunity that he had. And he said, um, I wrote this down because I didn't want to get it wrong. He said, the older I get, the shorter the list of things I'm willing to do for money is. <laughs> I totally, I mean, relate to that in a way. I used to, like, I would never pay somebody to wash my car when I was 18. Why would I ever spend that much time washing my car now? I would, you know, money, uh, time, time is, uh, you can make more money, but time is short, right? What he's saying is I've only got so much time, and the older I get in life, the more acutely aware I am of the fact that I don't have that much of it. And I would rather pay money or give up money than in, uh, give up the investment of this time that I have available to me. So how do we make the best use of our time? Well, broadly speaking, when we think about time in the Bible, I think the Bible says two things about the way that we use our time. And the first thing that the Bible says is that we should do good work. We should do meaningful work. Uh, we should work hard. And we should invest our lives doing work that actually matters. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says uh, to the church there, he says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life and work with your hands. He's saying meaningful and significant, the meaning and significance in life is found as we do good work that actually matters in the world. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing that the Bible says about time, I think is, is actually, I mean, you could take what I just said about work and kind of baptize that as like a Christian workaholism. But the second thing the Bible says about time is totally revolutionary in our culture that is in some ways defined by our busyness. When, 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 um, when God says, I'm going to take all of the moral commandments in the Bible and I'm going to boil them down to just the top ten, just the top ten things that I want you to do in the Ten Commandments, it's amazing that one of those has to do with the way that we use our time. And he says that my people are going to be characterized not just by doing good work, but by being people who know how to rest. And one out of every seven days, um, it's such an interesting thing to think about the fourth commandment. Is this a commandment, something we ought to do? Or is this good news of something that God declares is good for us? And I think the answer in some ways is both. That God says... I want my people to be people who are characterized by knowing how to rest. And so one out of every seven days, I want my people to set aside as a day of rest, as a day to recharge, as a day to worship and re be reminded about who you really are. You know, by nature, some of us are prone to workaholism. A friend of mine said to me, one way to think about workaholism is that, uh, or being a workaholic, is that everybody else pays for your work your family, your friends, everybody else pays for the work that you do. Okay, some of us, that's our tendency. Others of us are prone to laziness. And the idea of rest is like, yes, bring it on. I'm not just going to do one out of seven days. I'm going to do seven out of seven days. <laughs> but it takes wisdom that comes from knowing God to navigate the tension of being a person who can make the best use of the time, knowing when to work and knowing how to rest. 
I got a text from somebody this last week that said, you know, pray for me because um, work is busy and uh, I'm just, I'm, I, I, there's just a ton on my plate right now. And then there was a follow-up text that said, but I'll be at church. And I was like, yes, that is wisdom right there. Um, work hard and be people who know how to take a day off. The second or the last thing, and I'll finish with this, is that wisdom looks like not getting drunk. Now again, like what? <laughs> Where did that, everything with Paul, it was great until alcohol, what are you talking about? Let me just say this in case this is your first time here, I do not believe that the Bible forbids the use of alcohol. If you've been here more than, we already talked about wine somehow today in the announcements, I think. Um, don't get drunk. What is he talking about? He says, well, uh, because that is debauchery. The word debauchery means reckless living. What he's saying is that when alcohol is causing you to become reckless, you're drunk. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, notice what Paul says when, he, um, when he's talking about alcohol. He, say, he kind of sets up this dichotomy. He says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. As if they are two, you know, you can do one or the other. And what he's not saying is have two beers and then switch to, not wine, but switch to the Holy Spirit. Like, he's not saying that. Um, what is he saying? What he's saying is this, that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to help you experience the love of God. That is what the Holy Spirit does. Um, does God, if you're a Christian, does God love you at all times? Yes, he does. But do we always, in the ups and downs of life, experience do we always live as, as children of God? Do we always experience the reality that we're loved by God? Absolutely not, right? Um, and what, the, what this implies is that we often use alcohol to mask our lack of experience of God's love. Alcohol is a, um, what does alcohol do? It lowers our inhibitions. Well, the implication of that is that um, if, we need, if I need to drink in order to uh, lower my inhibitions, does that not also imply that most of the time I am severely inhibited? In other words, most of the time I'm not really that comfortable in my own skin, and so sometimes I need to take some steam off by having too many drinks um, in order to actually live with myself. That I use alcohol to sometimes put a distance between myself and like the the self that I really am that I don't actually like that much um, what I can tell you is this that a person who doesn't feel comfortable being themselves is a person who doesn't feel loved and so while um, I don't believe the Bible strictly forbids the use of alcohol I think Paul is saying that our use of alcohol is connected to our own insecurity about who we really are. So don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit tells you that you are the child of God. Walk in wisdom, walk in light, walk in love. Do you know anybody that actually lives like that? You know, in 1987, a book came out that spent two years at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. It was a uh, very academic book, uh, very insightful book. It's called Where's Waldo? 
And you know, you know what Where's Waldo is, right? It's um, these pictures and you're supposed to follow Waldo. And my kids love these books. I remember as a kid looking at these books and trying to find Waldo. And the problem is it takes you forever to find Waldo because he looks exactly like everybody else. And you look at these pages of people at the beach and they're all covered with little people wearing red and white striped bathing suits and that's what Waldo looks like. And you can't find Waldo anywhere because he looks exactly like everybody else. And I wonder if um, the results would be much different if we were to open a book called Where is the Christian? Um, is our world filled with Christians that look different enough that they're actually easy to pick out? We live in a world where we're trying to fill ourselves with sex and alcohol and workaholism and lavish vacations and kind of just one side of the spectrum to the other. And for the most part, I think it's fair to say that the Christians in the mix are not especially distinct, are we? So, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> because you could really take that in two ways and say, okay, first of all, let's just cross BevMo off my to-do list for the afternoon and reorganize my calendar and make sure I just, I got to buckle in, get my priorities right, and try harder, right? Or you could um, see it as a warning light on the dashboard that is flashing saying, there's something going on on the inside. There is an intimacy problem in our lives. That's where Paul starts, doesn't he? Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so if we look at our lives and we're have to, we have to be honest and say, actually, these things don't necessarily characterize my life. The, the, the solution is not to strap in and try harder. The solution is to go back and say, how have I forgotten about the love of God? How have I forgotten that I am his beloved child? There was a um, teenage girl, young teenage girl in the hospital. She was very sick. She was very, very sick. And um, the doctors had uh, determined that without a blood transfusion, she wasn't likely to survive. And so they called in all the relatives and friends and um, tried to find a match. And uh, it was discovered that her little brother was really the only good candidate to um, provide the blood for a blood transfusion. And so the, the little brother, being a young boy, you know, not really understanding the implications of all this, his parents kind of explained to him, your sister is going to die. She doesn't get your blood. But we want to, it's up to you. We're not going to force you to do this. And so the little boy said, well, can I think about it overnight? And I said, of course. And so the next morning he, he said, okay, I'm going to do it. And so they went to the hospital. And they hook up the, young, the little boy, I don't know how they do the transfusion, but to his sister and they begin to transfuse the blood from one to the other and as the little boy is sitting there in the hospital at one point he says to the doctor when am I going to start to die see in his mind he didn't realize that he didn't have to give her all of his blood and that little boy had weighed the cost 
And he had said yes, thinking that it would mean that he would give up his own life in order to save his sister. And when we look at the gospel, what we see is the story of our older brother Jesus who didn't just think he might have to give up his life, but who actually did give up his life for us. On the cross, Jesus hangs in our place, experiencing the wrath of God that is described in this passage because of our sexual immorality, because of our failure to be the light, because we are not wise. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself. And instead, in his place, we receive the smile of God who looks at us and calls us his children, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it on our behalf. And knowing the love that comes from being the child, a child of God based not on your record, but on the record of Jesus is the only thing that will give you a love for God that would allow you to actually imitate him in our world so that we might live as distinct in a world where everybody looks exactly the same. Will you pray with me? <coughs> Father, we don't have the willpower. We cannot jerry-rig our hearts with guilt or shame in such a way that it would allow us to produce this kind of behavior in ourselves. We could only begin to imitate you if we have known your love in such a deep way that we are really motivated to uh, shape our lives around you in response. And so, Father, we pray simply that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to know the love of Jesus and that it would transform us so that we would be people who love, people who are light, that it would make us wise in the world that we live in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.